know what this is a picture of? It, well, somebody said Hiroshima. It's an atomic explosion. I don't know which one it is, but it's a nuclear explosion. And uh, that's kind of scary, isn't it, looking? But the reason I wanted to grab hold of that is because that's such a poignant image of something that happens in an instant and releases so much power, so much energy, so many things change in an instant the moment that bomb is triggered. We've all kind of grown up in this age when we fear that mushroom cloud. We're afraid of that. We don't want that to happen because we know the ramifications of something like that being exploded around people. And the reason I have this huge amount of text stuff here is because I, I just went online and I said, okay, what happens when an atom bomb explodes? What happens when a nuclear bomb explodes? And I found reams of all these pages of stuff explaining what happens when a bomb is ignited. And, you know, that's just, you know, I just grabbed some of it and put it in a text box and put it real small because there's so much that happens. Now, that's a negative example, but I want to spin off of that. And, and, and if you can go with me, I want to move into this whole idea of what happens at the moment that a person surrenders their heart. Remember we talked about that essentially the whole experience of, of becoming saved comes down to this moment when we surrender our life to Jesus. When we open our life up and He comes in and becomes our Savior. That's a moment in time. What happens in that moment in time? A lot happens. So we're just going to kind of, if you will, we're going to freeze time and we're going to take a look at what happens in that, that moment because there is a lot of energy released far more than any atomic explosion. The power of God comes into our life. Friends, I want you to feel how awesome that is in that moment today as we, as we take a look at this. Alright, so we're going to talk about what happens when we get saved. And the first thing I want us to do is acknowledge or see that there are some really bad views of this. There are some skewed views of salvation. Okay, this is humanity. This is just human nature. We all tend to do this. We, we have a hard time staying in the middle and staying balanced. We all tend to go over to one side or the other. Way over here on one side, when we think of salvation, there are people who hold this view of instant perfection. I received Jesus. My life should be all better now. Right? All my problems are gone. Everything's solved. I mean, God's forgiven me. It's all great. Is that anybody's story? No. No. But there are people who hold that view, and I experience at times, and I hear people say, well, I gave my life to Christ, and I've served Him, and I just don't understand why He'd let this happen to me. Anybody been down that road? You feel like, well, I, I gave my heart to God. Why isn't it all perfect? But I, that, that's real, isn't it? That happens. We've all been impacted by that, that skewed view a little bit. That's real. The other side of the coin is the Jesus Plus plan. This shows up in the New Testament a lot. There was a group called the Judaizers who had their own version of this plan. And it was, receive Christ. That's good. The cross is good. But you still got to work. You still got to work for your salvation. You still got to do this religious thing and this religious thing and this religious thing. And you can put whatever you want in the blanks there that you've been told you have to do. Because we all have a list of things we think we are supposed to do to be a good Christian, right? So the Jesus Plus plan. Now, there's a nugget of truth in both of these views. There is something instant that happens. That There is an element of perfection that does happen. There is a cleansing that does happen when we receive Christ. 
but that, that view kind of skews it and takes it in a direction it doesn't need to go. The other, the Jesus Plus, there is a call to serve and to be plugged in. But friends, your salvation happens the moment you receive Christ. You're right with God. Okay, now I'm going I'm to unplug, I'm going to kind of flesh these out. You'll understand all this better as we go through. But we have these two views. There's a story about Martin Luther. We've all heard of Martin Luther in history. The uh, 16th century priest who ignited what we call the Reformation. He was walking home one time and he saw a drunk coming home from a pub on his horse. And he said he watched him try to get home. And he was so drunk he'd get on his horse, he'd ride about five feet and he'd fall off to the right. He'd fall off his horse. He'd stagger and get back up on his feet and he'd find his horse and he'd get back up on his horse and he'd ride a few feet and he'd fall off to the left. And he kept doing that. He couldn't stay in the saddle. And later Martin, he, he commented, he said, you know Christians are a lot like that guy. We have a hard time staying in the saddle. We, we, we tend to want to gravitate to way over here or way over here. When it comes to balancing grace and truth, we, we, we struggle to find the middle. We, we, we're, it's, it's all about, hey, just forgive and it's all good. Or, or we come in over here in the other camp and it's all about truth and holiness. And Jesus came full of both. Isn't that a beautiful thing? In John it says, Jesus came full of grace and truth. And a proper understanding of salvation is found in the balance of those two things. Okay? So that's, that's what we're going to examine. Here's a biblical way to, to describe I think, salvation. It's a new birth on the inside that ignites a growth process that spreads to the outside. Let me say that again. It's a new birth on the inside that ignites a growth process that spreads to the outside. Or, as I'm going to say it throughout this message, it's an inward miracle with an outward mandate. You know what a mandate is? A call, a challenge, a command... So salvation is an inward miracle, something that happens in our heart the moment we do this and receive Christ by faith. But it comes with a mandate that things need to start happening in our life in an exterior way that we grow in that as we, uh, as we proceed. First, let's look at this inward miracle. What happens in that instant that we re receive Christ? I want to look at four words today. Number one, we're born again. We're born again. That's a, that's a Christian word. We've heard that a hundred times, a million times. Billy Graham talked about it all the time. Come be born again. It's very biblical. We actually looked at this same scripture last week, but I want to look at it again here in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. I'm getting old. I've got to take my glasses off to read. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, because Nicodemus is inquiring about how to be right with God. And he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And remember last week we talked about this whole notion that we can't see. This is why we need to be saved. We can't see God. We can't relate with God. We can't, we can't perceive of what it means to have a relationship with God when we're still living in a sinful state. We went back to Genesis last week and we talked about that Adam and Eve had this beautiful relationship with God there was one command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that day you will surely die. 
Remember, Jesus, or God said that in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And God meant by that, that when you eat of that fruit, when you disobey, these deaths, these two deaths will come into the world. Physical death, which absolutely came as a, as a result of, of their sin, but also this spiritual death. And so when they allowed the serpent to tempt them and they ate that fruit, this is why when God showed up, and the text indicates that he would walk with them daily and they had this beautiful relationship. This is why when they disobeyed him, shame had come into their life and their relationship with God was, had been severed because spiritually when they partook of that fruit, the spiritual dimension of them that God put in them to have a, so that they could relate with him, died. There was a spiritual death. I don't want to re-preach last week, but I want to make sure for those of you who weren't here, we, we, we really honed in on this idea that every person is created in the image of God. We, we are a spirit being. You're different than cats and dogs and birds. You have a spiritual dimension to you that God put into you for the specific purpose of relating with Him. You have a soul, which is your personality. It's who you are. It's your mind, your will, your emotions. It's why you're different than the person sitting beside you. It's what makes you, you. And you live in a body. And when sin took place, it came into the world, and the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, the spiritual dimension of us died, and the flesh took over. And in, when you read through the New Testament, we, we read about this flesh, this sin nature. And so, because our, the sin part of us has taken, or has uh, caused this death in our spiritual nature, we can't relate with God. That's a problem. When we receive Christ, we're born again. There's a new birth. The Holy Spirit of God comes in and brings life. There's an igniting of, of a fresh life in our spirit. Our spirit's brought back so now we can connect with God and relate with God and walk with Him. That's number one. Word number two is adopted. I love this word. This is so tender to me. This this speaks of family. This speaks of earthly relationships that we can relate with. We can all relate with, and it's, it's such a wonderful thing when we think of two human beings, a, a couple or, or someone that comes to the rescue of, a, of an orphan, someone that doesn't have a home, and they adopt them and bring them into their family. That's a beautiful thing to give someone a home, give a child a home. That's exactly what the Bible says God does for us when we trust Christ. Listen to what John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 say. This We also looked at last week, but we'll revisit it because it, it says something really good for us this week. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Speaking of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was rejected and nailed to the cross. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you receive Christ, God brings you into his family. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So when we place our trust in Christ, we're made right and holy in God's eyes because of our faith in Jesus. And listen to this. God declared in advance, that is before he even made the world, or he decided rather in advance before he made the world to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. 
This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I love the last part of that verse. Don't you love, doesn't it make you feel good to think and consider the fact that God is excited about adopting you? That should make you feel so blessed to know that the God of the universe smiles and is blessed by the idea of bringing you into his family. He wants to be your father. He loves you. He enjoys your company. He wants you to be part of his family. That blesses me. That makes me feel so good about life. And, and, and it fills my heart with a sense of purpose. I wake up in the morning saying, I'm a child of God. God is my father. I've been adopted into his family. What an amazing thing that is. And, and, and the foresight that before he spoke the universe into existence, he decided that all who would trust Christ would be part of this family. John chapter 3, verse 1. Or 1 John, rather. Chapter 3, verse 1. John there, here says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us uh, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Children of God. Friend, I hope that blesses you to know that not only are you born again, there's not only been a re-generation of that spiritual part of you, but you have been adopted and brought into God's family. You have a father. That's, that's just amazing to me. I just get caught up in that. Let's look at number three. Justified. The moment you receive Christ, justification happens. What does justified mean? Well, I had a great New Testament professor in, in Romans, the book of Romans. His name was Dr. Dennis Gartner. And I'll, he gave us the most simple definition of the word justified. I've never forgotten it. It blesses me and I hope it will bless you. To be justified means to be made just as if I'd never sinned. Consider that, okay? Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. Now let's go back to the garden. And let's think if Eve could have, right before that <laughs> happened, if we could have rewound the tape and said, no, we're not going to do that. Let's go back to right before that happened. How beautiful was that relationship with God before sin came into the world? How right were they with God? They were perfect. It was awesome. Friends, the plan of God is that through Christ, in terms of your relationship with Him, He rewound the tape. Because of the blood of Christ and he, his, his willingness to, to pay the price, when you trust Him, you're made just as if you'd never sinned. That is awesome. That happens in that moment. I love that. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I think sometimes we need to pause. Uh, sometimes we get so comfortable in our salvation. We get so used to just knowing that God loves us and that we're forgiven. It's helpful to pause and really reflect on what would it be like if you didn't know Him? Because He says we have peace with God. That's a wonderful thing. But you really can't appreciate it until you begin to think about what would it be like to not have peace with God? What would, what would it, the Bible says that we were all, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we were objects of His wrath. I don't know 
all that that means, but that doesn't sound good to me. To be an object of the wrath of God. But through trusting Christ, we've been made just as if we've never sinned and we have peace with God. That's an amazing thing. All of this happens the instant, the moment that you trust Christ. That is an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Let's look at number four. Redemption or redeemed. Oh, we love to sing, we have been redeemed. It's a great word. It means to be delivered or saved by payment. Delivered or saved by payment. If we can harken back to that time in our country when we, all, when we had slavery and people owned people, I mean, that was a horrible thing. But imagine if you had limitless resources and you could just go buy all of these people that were slaves and set them free. Give them their freedom. What a wonderful thing that would be. In that case, you would be redeeming them. You're paying the price for them and you're giving them their freedom. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He paid the price. The wages of sin is death. The holiness of God demanded that we die for our sin. But the perfect Son of God says, I'll step into the gap. I'll pay the price. I'll come. I'll live the perfect life, thereby being made qualified. I say this all the time. You could die for me or I could die for you, but that wouldn't help because we're all just, all of our blood's been tainted, if you will. But the perfect Son of God lived the perfect life, appeased all the requirements of God, and shed His blood for our sin once for all. Isn't that beautiful? That is awesome. Now listen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. This, this is so full and so good. The Hebrew writer says, He, and that's a reference to Jesus, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats, and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now I want to break that down because I want that to make real good sense to you. The Hebrew writer here is thinking about the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, by the way, this, is, this will help you understand why it's so good to read the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had priests. They had men who were intercessors. And their whole livelihood was about interceding between the people and God. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices. The people would constantly bring sacrifices to the priests for their sin. And in, in doing that, God was teaching them there has to be the loss of life and the shedding of blood to atone for your sin. And it had to be a spotless lamb and a perfect, or a perfect uh, you know, animal from your flock. So it would cost you something. And they would offer this blood. And once a year, we've all heard of the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the priest would take that blood into a very special place in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. Now, understand the temple. The temple had m lots of space in it. Had lots of what they called courts. Different, different levels. Anyone was welcome in the, the outer courts of the, of the temple. Even Gentiles, non-Jews were allowed in certain parts of the, of the temple. But as you moved toward the back, toward the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, no one could go in that space. Only the high priest. Remember, maybe you, you remember from your study of, of the Bible that it was separated by a huge, very thick curtain. And behind this curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that the, that the Hebrews carried around 
in the, in the wilderness. And it was made of, of pure gold and the lid had two angels on it, cherubim, that, that, that were formed in such a way that they looked down on the lid. And that lid was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go through, all, only the high priest, the, the number one guy, he'd go through this whole day of ritual purification and sacrifice to make himself clean and right with God. It was a big deal. And then he would sacrifice this, this one animal that was the, the, the atonement sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And he would take this blood in all of his special garments and he would walk behind the curtain. And they would tie a rope to his leg. Maybe you've heard this before. And he'd have bells on his garments so that he could be heard when he was moving. And the idea behind the rope and the bells was that if he wasn't pure before God, God would strike him dead. And no one could go in there and get him. Because if they went in there, you couldn't be in God's presence either. So if the high priest died, they had to pull him out by the rope. That was the idea. This is how holy the presence of God was and how revered the presence of God was. So this priest on this one day would go in with this blood after all this purification and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And the symbolism behind all of that was that the angels of the cherubim who represented God's presence would see the blood that had been shed and atone for the sin of the nation. Beautiful. What the Hebrew writer here is saying, and, and if we could read the, the greater context, is this. Those priests, those earthly priests, they were okay. They were good. But they had to sacrifice for themselves all the time because they were sinners. They were sinners as well. So they were flawed, or flawed, flawed I should say, faulted. And the blood that they brought was just a sheep or a calf. And that's good, but it's still not perfect. So they had to do it again and again and again. The Hebrew writer says, the Son of God was the high priest. He was the fulfillment of all of that. And His blood, He was the Lamb of God. So He entered the most holy place, not on earth, but in heaven, with His own blood. And once for all, sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Therefore, all who trust in Him, once for all, have eternal redemption. I'm waiting for somebody to shout hallelujah or something. I mean, guys, this is eternal redemption. That is so awesome. Jesus did that for you. That is just marvelous. So, so we're born again. We're adopted into his family. We're justified just as if we'd never sinned. And we have eternal redemption because of what Christ has done for us. And then Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says... He who began a good work in you, so there Paul's talking about this work that begins in us when we trust Christ, this instant change of born again, redemption, all those things. He'll carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So there Paul is kind of referring to the fact that there's this momentary thing that happens instantly, but then God's going to continue to work. He's going to continue to do a work in your life after you receive Christ. And that's what I want to move into next. Now we get into the outward mandate. We've experienced the miracle. Jesus has reborn us. We've been adopted and justified, and it's awesome. But then there's this, this language in the Bible that talks about continuing on in that and growing in that. And I just want to use two words. Word number one is sanctification. Sanctification. We've probably all heard that word a lot. 
sanctification has two dimensions to it. One is an inner one where we're sanctified in our inner man the moment we trust Christ. We're set apart. The word sanctified means to be set apart for a special holy purpose, for God's purpose. But then there's also this calling to continually grow in that. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And I always like to, to uh, highlight the fact that, that he's writing to the Corinthians. Now, I love the Corinthians because they give me hope. If, if you've read the whole book of Corinthians, you know that this letter is filled with Paul having to deal with lots of baggage that the Corinthians had. These guys have not grown up in Christ. They have all kinds of issues. There's sexual sin. They're hauling each other to court and suing each other. There's, there's lots of stuff. When they, when they partook of the Lord's Supper, they, you know, one would, would drink a whole bottle of wine while the other one didn't get anything. And I mean, it was crazy, okay? And yet, listen to what Paul says to them. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified. Is that not awesome? That's not based on their performance. That's based on their trust in Jesus. And it's got an ED on the end, which means it's a done deal. You've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. But look at this. You're called to be holy, which is really a close cousin to sanctification. You, you've been sanctified through your faith in Jesus. Now you're called to grow in that. You're called to progress in that, to become more of what God wants you to be. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Paul says, Therefore my dear friends, as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When Paul says fear and trembling, he's, he's not saying be scared to death of God. He's talking about a reverent awe. Have an awe of God and a reverence for God and a love for God and a recognition of who He is and let that motivate you to work out your salvation. I love, we got to point out, He's not saying work for that salvation. You work, the work is done for salvation. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. When I trust Him, I'm saved. What does this work out? Take that inward miracle of God's presence in your life his love in your life, his, his character in your life, the power of God that comes to reside in you by way of the Holy Spirit and by way of every day waking up and saying, Lord, my life is yours. I surrender to the leading of your Holy Spirit today. Lord, I give you my life every moment of every day. And through that process, God will continue to work in you and through you to work out or to manifest in your life that character of Christ that is put in you when you trust Him. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. That's the character of Christ. As you work out your salvation through a regular, daily surrender of your life and your will to God, you begin to grow in the character of Christ. You begin to manifest, become more like your Savior. Does that make sense? That is what spiritual growth is about. You get the gold mine the moment you receive Christ. And then you spend a life allowing Him to flesh that out in the way you walk and talk and treat people. You become more like your Savior. Now there's a real important point here. If you understand that, 
That's incredibly helpful because there's two roads that people choose or have a choice between after they do this. After you choose Christ, people tend to walk down one of two roads. The road of religion or the road of relationship. Okay? I'm saved. The road of religion says... I get real good at Christianese. I know the words we use. I know the things I'm supposed to say. I can answer all the questions right in the Bible study. I can say really pretty prayers. And I go to church all the time. And so we focus at getting really good at Christianese. But God forbid someone should step on our toes or hurt us because we'll rip their head off. <laughs> you ever met somebody like that? Man, they were, they were religious. But was the character of Christ being manifest in tenderness and kindness and mercy and generosity and sweetness? Oh no. But boy, they were good church people. This is what it's all about, guys. Daily surrendering, learning to be more tender, more kind, more loving, more gracious, more of Christ. More of his personality, his, his, not just personality, you've got your own personality, your char his character in your life. It's beautiful. That's what we're called to. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 18. This is the last verse. I love this. Peter says, and he's writing to people who are facing a problem in the church. There's there are some other people in the church who are stirring up trouble and causing people to be swayed away from a pure devotion to Christ. The church dealt with false teaching and issues all the time, and Peter's dealing with that, but I find it so interesting to see how he tells them to deal with it. He says, I'm warning you ahead of time, dear friends, be on your guard so that you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and, uh, and lose your secure footing. So he's saying, listen, there's people in the church who are trying to teach things and influence people. And I'm telling you, if you get caught up in it, it's going to pull you away from a pure devotion to Christ and your security is going to be undermined. But here's, here's what he says do. Rather, here's what you do. You must grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in your knowledge of Christ. Choose this relationship path. Choose to grow. And what does it mean to know grace? God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Grow in that. Embrace that. Thank God for it. And then learn how to be a dispenser of it. Learn how to give grace. You know you're spiritually mature, not just when you can talk about grace in class, but when you give it to people that you'd rather knock out. You understand? The flesh says... Hold, hold on to forgiveness. Don't love them. Treat, you know, be harsh. They don't deserve it. Look what they've done. They've been here and they've done that and da-da-da-da. Grace says, did you deserve it? And all of a sudden you wake up, whoa, no. Then give it to them just like God gave it to you. That's awesome. Peter, though, says essentially the best offense or the best defense is a good offense. Don't get caught up in your 25 lists of things that we shouldn't do. Get caught up in the one thing that we should do. Grow in grace. Grow in your knowledge of Christ. Seek Christ. Let's, let's do a little exercise as we, as we come to a close. Think about this. I want you to try. 
to not think about chocolate cake. Don't think about chocolate cake. It ain't happening, is it? You see, when you focus on trying all the things that I shouldn't do, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't go here, I shouldn't drink, chew, or go with girls who do, and all those things, you know, all that stuff. You heard that before, right? Or is that just a Hoosier thing? But, you know, you, you, that's, that's religion. That's religion. I don't do this, I don't eat this, I don't taste this, I don't go here, blah, blah, blah. That, that leads to crustiness. That doesn't lead to character change. That doesn't lead to a person becoming more like Christ. So Peter says, don't focus on all that. Focus on growing in grace and growing in your knowledge of the presence of Christ in your life and becoming more like Him. That's awesome. Okay, guys, let's bow our heads and pray. And as we do that, as we bow our heads, I want to give you a chance to reflect in your own life. Spend some time with God. And let's just thank him today for what he's done for us, okay? Enter into a time of prayer with God right now. Become aware that he's with you and he loves you and he's here right now. Thank him for that new birth that you received through Jesus. You're born again. Thank him for adopting you into his family. That he's your father. Jesus is your brother. How awesome is that? Thank you that he's made you just as if you'd never sinned. You've been justified. Thank him for redeeming you. He paid the price for your freedom. And then friends, allow that thankfulness right now to spur you on and think about that mandate to grow. What does that mean to grow in Christ? Think about that. I want you to think about what is God calling you to next? Where do you need to become more like Christ in your life? Father, it's good to be here today and we're so thankful to have this word. We're so thankful for your goodness to us through Jesus. When we leave here today, walk with us and encourage us and spur us on to be thankful and to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen.